Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, I'm still here in my hotel room in Orlando at the Money Show, but before I went downstairs on this Saturday morning, I wanted to record a podcast to address the issues raised by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, as she is now uh, being referred to, or that's how she's known. I guess I'm just going to call her the bartender just uh, to make it easier for me and to keep all this in perspective. Well, anyway, the bartender turned congresswoman uh, has uh, basically released the laughable details of her Green New Deal. And, of course, you know, the Green New Deal really lays bare the smokescreen that I have always believed existed with respect to extreme environmentalism. I've always thought that it was masking a real desire for socialism, that the real goal of some of these radical environmentalists was socialism, was nationalizing the means of production, getting government control and ownership of society and implementing all this stuff, but they couldn't come out and say that, right? They they had to disguise their red goals uh, with green wrapping, right? They had to approach it as an environmentalist. Hey, we have to save the planet. We have to save the earth. And yeah, who is it in favor of that? Everybody wants clean air, clean water. So the way the socialists really tried to wedge their way into the mainstream was, you know, with this uh, veneer of, um, of environmentalism. But when you actually read the Green New Deal, I mean, it blows all that smoke away and it really lays bare the socialist agenda of environmentalists, because really that's what the Green New Deal is all about. It's red. It's all about turning America into a socialist economy or more uh, particular, a fascist economy, because fascism is really the form of socialism that best describes what this bartender is advocating. And, you know, I've said from the beginning when uh, Ocasio-Cortez describes herself or the bartender describes uh, herself as a democratic socialist, right? Say, oh, see, I'm not a real socialist. I am a democratic socialist. Putting the word democratic before something bad doesn't make the something bad into something good. Remember, I got some flack from my uh, or comments on my last podcast when I was talking about uh, the right to vote and why I didn't think that, you know, everybody should be voting and we should have ways of limiting the suffrage, which today doesn't necessarily mean that we should limit it based on gender like they did uh, when the uh, republic was first formed and, and women had very different roles in society than they have today. But if we are going to have elections and people are going to vote, we need to find a way to make sure that the best outcome 
is the result of an election. And that means keeping people from voting who are going to vote in ridiculous things like socialism. I mean, when people talk about, hey, I believe in democracy, but I don't believe in socialism. Well, what if you have democratically elected socialism? What if a bunch of idiots are dumb enough to buy into socialism and they vote for it? Are you in favor of it just because a bunch of idiots voted for it? No. So if you don't believe in socialism, but you know that there is a tendency of the public to be gullible enough to buy into this nonsense, then why would you support a political system that makes it possible for a bunch of morons to vote in socialism. And then I'm not going to say, oh, I'm in favor of it just because the, the majority wanted to do it. I mean, the majority doesn't get to determine the form of government that we're going to have. The idea was to enshrine that in the Constitution and to preserve and protect the rights that we have under the Constitution. That's why we formed government. And we can't let the mob, which is what uh, democracy is, mobocracy, we can't let the mob trample all over our rights. So it's not about democracy and just making sure everybody gets a vote. What we want to make sure is that we have good government that benefits everybody, whether you are unable to vote or not. And as I said many times, I would rather live in a country where I can't vote, yet I have good government, than one where I can vote, but my vote is overridden by a bunch of idiots, and so I end up voting for the loser, and we get socialism. So that is the problem, and I've said there is no difference, and if you read you know, the, this proposal for a Green New Deal, it is pure, unadulterated socialism. It is about the government taking over the means of production, nationalizing, you know, all kinds of government spending, control and plans for the economy. And the bartender actually believes, right, that all of this nonsense is going to create this unprecedented economic prosperity. She believes that the government by micromanaging the economy and basically taking over and centrally planning an economy that the government is going to succeed in creating prosperity. This is what every socialist who has risen to power, you know, whether by force or by vote, has always promised the public. They always promise pie in the sky prosperity, all these great things that the government is going to provide. And, you know, if... Um, there really was this threat. And first of all, in order to get people to buy into this nonsense, they have to create this false threat of global warming, this man-made global warming that is going to bring the entire world to an end in, um, in 12 years. But if this was really the case, if you really believed that global warming was such a threat that it would require this massive mobilization uh, on the scale that uh, the bartender claims we need, if, right? If, if that was really the deal, if you were going to be honest with the American people, you would not be talking about how this is going to be a great boom for the economy, how everybody's going to be richer and have better jobs and have all kinds of goodies and free stuff. You would have to level with the American public and say, you know what? We have got this major crisis coming and we're going to have to suck it up. We're calling on all Americans to sacrifice. We are going to have to work harder for less, right, in order to make this possible. I mean, she's talking about stuff like how, oh, the government's going to guarantee everybody gets uh, paid vacations. No, 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 no. People are going to have to give up their vacations. People are going to have to give up their leisure. In fact, in order to try to accomplish what uh, the bartender says we need to do, I mean, She's promising everybody free education. We don't have any money for education. The people who are in school have to drop out. Everybody's got to roll up their sleeves. We got to work our butts off. Forget about weekends. We're going to work seven days a week. We're going to work like, you know, 18-hour days. We have to rebuild every single building that exists in this country. You know, according to her, we need to start building railroad tracks. We got we got to replace 
air travel. We, we want to make sure we have high-speed trains. I mean, the irony of, of, of this, the government's going to rebuild the railroads. The government destroyed the railroads that the free market originally built. They taxed them and regulated them, and the unions destroyed our railroads so we can build the national highway system. The free market built those railroads, not the government. Now she wants the government to build high-speed trains. Okay, who's going to build them? Who's going to lay the tracks? Who's going to build the planes? She wants to get rid of all the cars, scrap all of our cars, right? we got millions of cars on the road, and she doesn't want any zero uh, fossil fuels or emissions. She wants to have us all electric. Well, what's it going to cost? How are we going to build all those plants? How are we going to build all those cars? I mean, demand power alone, what that is going to take, this would be a massive sacrifice for everybody. Right. I mean, this is not going to be an economic boom. We're going to have to live through some very, very difficult times where people aren't going to get new stuff. They're going to have to give up the stuff they already have. People are going to have to give up a lot of leisure. They're going to have to give up all this consuming. We're just going to have to work, work, work. Right. People who are who are retired are going to have to come out of retirement. Kids are going to have to drop out of school. We're all going to be working because this is a massive threat. Our very existence depends in this. We have to reverse global warming, right? Assuming we can even do that, right? We all have to do this. So this really should not be being sold as a great economic stimulus, something that's going to cure all the problems of society. This is going to make all the problems of society much worse. I mean, if you think you got it bad now, Wait till you see how much worse your life is going to be if we have to implement the Green New Deal. Let me just uh, you know read a little bit of the way the bartender describes this. And of course, she actually had this Q&A thing up on her website, and it's not up there anymore because she had to pull it down because I guess she was so embarrassed by the sheer level of stupidity in some of the things that she was talking about. But uh, uh, just the, the way she describes a plan, she says that the Green New Deal resolution, a 10-year plan, right? Just all, all the socialists always have a plan, like five-year plan, 10-year plan. So we got a 10-year plan. To mobilize every aspect of American society at a scale not seen since World War II to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions and create economic prosperity for all, right? So according to the bartender, the government is going to mobilize the economy to create prosperity for everyone. Right now, again, why does she think that our current government, right, the guys in Washington that we have are so much smarter than the guys that tried this in the old Soviet Union or, you know, Fidel Castro or Chavez down in in, uh, Venezuela? I mean, why are our politicians going to succeed where all these other politicians with the exact same goal failed? Right. Socialism, government's attempt to create prosperity, created widespread poverty, starvation, hunger everywhere. It's been tried. Yet somehow the guy, our politicians like her, like this bartender, she's so smart. Right. That she could do all this. Her and her buddies are just so genius that they are going to create all this prosperity that the free market wasn't able to create. So here's what she writes or it said, move America to a 100 percent clean and renewable energy. 100%, not even 99%, 100% clean renewable energy. Create millions of family supporting wage union jobs. Right? We got to create unionized jobs. Unions destroy jobs. How are we going to create these union jobs? Ensure a just transition. Just according to who? Who determines what's just? You know, what group of people determine justice, right? Ensure a just transition for all communities and workers to ensure economic security for people and communities that have historically relied on fossil fuel industry, right? So we have to have a transition because we're going to put all the workers in in natural gas and coal and oil. See, all these guys are going to be out of work. So the government is going to figure out new jobs for them and employ them. Right. Ensure justice and equity for frontline communities by prioritizing investment, training, climate and community resilience, economic and environmental benefits in these communities. So what the government's going to do all this. Right. Build on FDR's second Bill of Rights. Right. Bill of Rights guaranteeing. Right. So this is what the government's going to guarantee a job with a family sustaining wage, family and medical leave vacations and retirement security. So wait a minute. This is guaranteed. The government's going to guarantee you a family sustaining wage. Well, what if you don't have any skills? 
What if you can't do anything? How are you going to get a wage to support a family if you don't have any marketable skills, right? And in fact, I think earlier on her website, she took it down because she got a lot of flack. It says the government was going to provide you with all this stuff, whether you worked or not. Even if you weren't willing to work, you were going to get paid as if you did work, which of course then, if you got the choice, do I work hard and, and get paid or do I not work at all and make the same money? I mean, gee, tough decision. So I think she backtracked away from that. But so as long as you're willing to work, even if you don't have any skills and you can't do anything of value, the government's going to guarantee that you can support a family and that you also get paid vacations, medical leave, a secure retirement. I mean, all this nonsense then guarantee, guarantee to everybody, high quality education, including higher education and trade school. So higher education, everybody is guaranteed for free to go to college. What does that have to do with the Green New Deal, right? As I said, if we really have this environmental emergency, we can't send kids to college. We don't have the money to waste on college right now. We need those guys out building train tracks, right? They can't be in classroom study. We don't have any money for that. We have to rebuild every building. Everybody's got to roll up their sleeves and get down in the dirt. We got a lot of work to do. We don't have time sending kids to college, right? But she wants to do all this and send all these kids to college for free, for free. Then again, clean air, clean water, healthy food, right? High quality health care, safe, affordable, adequate housing. That's a guarantee. That's your right as an American. You just get to say, hey, here I am. I'm here. I demand my safe, affordable housing, right? Uh, economic environment free of monopolies, right? I guess more tr- you know, go after these monopolies. Of course, all the real monopolies are exist because of government. Uh, economic security for all who are unable, oh, here, here's here's the line. I guess she took this one out. Economic security for all who are unable or unwilling to work, right? That's what she took out, I guess, the unwilling. So we're even if you're unable to work, okay, that means you're disabled. We'll make sure you have economic security. But even if you just don't want to work because you, you'd rather have fun, well, we're going to make sure that you have economic security too, right? What does that have to do, again, with saving the planet? You know, what does that have to do with this threat that we have from global warming? Nothing, nothing. They're just trying to get this socialist agenda through by, you know, wrapping it up in these green ribbons about climate change and global warming. And the fact that all this stuff is in here basically is an admission that all the environmental stuff is a bunch of BS, because if it really was this threat, then we would put all this stuff to the side. It wouldn't be about all this free stuff. It would be about saving the planet. It would be about the shared sacrifice that we all were going to have to make. Now, of course, you know, she talks about this as a big challenge, right? America's love a challenge, right? Uh, She says, this is our moonshot. When JFK said we go to the moon by the end of the decade, people said it was impossible. I mean, well, first of all, People didn't think it was impossible to go to the moon. I think they just thought that we wouldn't be able to get there that quickly. But we did. But, you know, go to the moon was probably a waste of money. But it was a tiny amount of money relative to what she's talking about spending. I mean, that was nothing. I mean, the moonshot was 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 cheap. I mean, plus, we were still a wealthy nation back in the 1960s. We were still uh, the world's biggest creditor nation. We were running trade surpluses. Our debt was still relatively small. So if we wanted to blow money going to the moon, we could afford to do it. We were rich enough to waste money going to the moon, right? Then she says, if Eisenhower wanted to build the interstate highway system today, people would ask, how do we pay for it? Yeah, that's what they asked then. Of course, nobody nobody back then would have said, we're going to build the interstate highway system for free. Of course they paid for it. I mean, and, you know, they paid for it with taxes. That's how they paid for it. That's how we paid for everything. Now, some of this stuff was borrowed, but the debts that we were running in the 1950s were tiny, you know, you know, compared to what we're talking about now. Then she talks about when FDR called on America to build 185,000 planes to fight World War II. So I don't even know if her numbers are right. I haven't checked any of this out, but I'll just, you know, give her, a, you know, maybe they are. Uh, Every business leader, CEO, and general laughed at him. At the end of the time, the U.S. had produced 3,000 planes uh, in the last year. Um, By the end of the war, we produced 300,000 planes. Uh, That's what we're capable of doing with real leadership. Now, the reason that we were able to ramp up all of that production was because we had all of these factories that were producing uh, civilian 
uh, aircraft or civilian automobiles or civilian, uh, you know, washing machines and, and dryers and dish, all the things that we had. We had huge manufacturing infrastructure in this country, and we were able to re, you know, divert that capacity to the war effort. So we were able to take this huge industrial machine and temporarily redirect the output away from the consumer goods that were being produced at the time to producing military goods to be used in the war effort. That's what made it possible is because we already had the infrastructure, the factories, the machines, the workers in place to do the work. We obviously couldn't do this today because we don't have our industry. The industry is gone. Our industry is in China. So we couldn't do what we did in in, uh, in World War II. But here's the most crazy part about the whole analysis. And of course, she brings this up because Acacia Cortez, I mean, the bartender, she actually believes that all the money that we had to spend to win World War II was a boom for the economy. She says this massive investment in our economy and society, it's not an expenditure. So she says, well, what we what she wants to do now, the trillions and trillions of dollars that she wants to spend on this fantasy is not spending. It's an investment. And then she writes, we invested 40 to 50 percent of GDP in our economy during World War II and created the greatest middle class the U.S. has ever seen. That is a bunch of BS. First of all, we did not invest in our economy when we fought World War II. We sacrificed our economy. We used the resources that otherwise would have been used for more productive civilian purposes, and we diverted those resources to the war effort. The standard of living of American citizens plunged during the war. I mean, A, if you weren't off fighting in, in, in Europe or in Japan, right, if you were at home, you had it tough. First of all, lots of women were now working. Remember Rosie the Riveter? These were a lot of housewives who now were working in factories because their husbands were fighting uh, you know, a war. And so they had to come out of the home and work building stuff and working in these factories. So you had a lot of people that had to work. Meanwhile, you couldn't buy anything. Everything was rationed. Right. Things were in short supply. Things were scarce. I mean, people didn't get to consume anything during the war. Everybody was working. Everybody was consumed with the war effort. So it was not a boom. It was a sacrifice. Americans collectively sacrificed to fight that war. And not only did they pay higher taxes, which I'm going to get to a little later, but Americans bought war bonds. Americans loaned their savings to the U.S. government. It wasn't the Federal Reserve just cranking up the printing presses, although they did that too, right? We did have a lot of inflation during the Second World War, but a lot of the money that the government borrowed was loaned to it by American citizens who had lots of savings. And they loaned their savings to the U.S. government by buying war bonds. So the U.S. government taxed the American people and borrowed for the American people. And the American people sacrificed not only the lives of their, of their sons or their husbands or their brothers or their fathers, but they sacrificed in terms of their current standard of living. Now, people didn't complain about how rotten things were uh, you know, here at home because at least you had it better than people who were dying on the front. But everybody worked collectively and sacrificed, shared sacrifice. Nobody at the time, not even Roosevelt, was dumb enough to say that World War II was a stimulus and this was all great and this was going to benefit the economy. No, we had a bigger issue. We had to defeat Hitler. We had to defeat imperial fascism, the Nazis, the Japanese. You know, that's what we had to do. It wasn't about an economic boom or, or justice or equality or redistributing wealth. Everybody knew that everybody was going to sacrifice. Everybody's lives temporarily were going to be worse so that we can achieve our goals of defeating uh, Hitler and defeating Japan, and that ultimately we would benefit from that in the long run because we defeated this force of evil throughout the world. Then she says, the interstate highway system has returned more than $6 in economic productivity for every $1 cost. Now, I don't know how she pulled this statistic out of her ass. I don't know where she gets this, but I told you, I mentioned earlier in this podcast, in order to create the interstate commerce system. And I, I don't think the U.S. government should have done that. You know, And it doesn't mean we wouldn't have roads. I mean, we would have plenty of roads if the private sector built them, which they would have done. But we destroyed our rail system. America had the greatest railroad system in the world, in the world. And it's gone. 
And the reason that we lost our rail system is because of taxes, regulation, and labor unions. Without those things, we would probably still have a great rail system. In fact, we'd probably already have all this high-speed rail that uh, this bartender wishes the government or thinks the government could create. They already destroyed it. We'd probably already have that. We would have an incredible rail system, but for the interference, taxation, and regulation of the U.S. government and of the coercive power of labor unions, which ultimately drove these uh, railroads out of business. But, of course, the funniest part about all this I mean, I don't know if it's really funny or sad, uh, but, you know, the, the most ridiculous part about it is not that the bartender thinks we need it, right? Not the idea, not, not, not the science behind the fact that we're all going to perish unless we mobilize to fight off uh, man-made climate change, right? Forgetting about all that and forgetting about just the, the things that she wants to do, right? The things that we need to do. The whole, I mean, all that stuff is completely ridiculous. And again, you can read more of the details. The entire bill is online. So I don't want to go over every single ridiculous element of, of the goal. And even if it were feasible to do that, right? The most ridiculous part about it all, and again, all of it is completely unconstitutional. None of this would, would pass uh, constitutional muster. I mean, the Supreme Court that we have today, most of this stuff would probably be struck down. I mean, I don't think they're that bad uh, that they would ignore the Constitution completely. But apart from the legality of that and the stupidity of all that, the, the dumbest part, again, is believing that all of this is going to benefit us and create massive prosperity. She has in her, you know, Q&A, how will we pay for it, right? The same way we paid for the New Deal, the 2008 bank bailout and extended quantitative easing programs, the same way we paid for World War II and our current wars. The Federal Reserve can extend credit to power these projects and investments, and new public banks can be created to extend credit. There is also space for the government to take an equity stake in projects to get a return on investment. The government, well, where, where are they going to get the money? You know, I thought I saw somebody, there was an interview, I think it was on Fox, and they were interviewing people about how to pay for the uh, Green New Deal, or maybe it was just how to pay for um, uh, Medicare for all and all this stuff. And, and one of the persons, I, I cracked up and I heard her answer. She said, well, I think that some of it, of course, should be paid for by taxes, but the rest of it should be paid for by the government, right? As if the government has this secret pot of money that it, that it, that it can tap into. The only money the government has is the money it takes from taxpayers, right? But again, here you have Cortez thinking, oh, no, 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 the government's just going to invest and we're going to have, you know, this huge return on our investment. Then she writes here, at the end of the day, this is an investment in our economy that should grow our wealth as a nation. So the question isn't how will we pay for it, but what will we do with our new shared prosperity? So we are going to retrofit the entire country, right? We're going to have to rebuild all the existing structures. We're going to have to junk all of our cars to somehow get new electric cars, right? We're going to have to transform everything, and everyone's going to get all this free stuff, and we're all going to be richer. We're all going to share in the prosperity. No, we're going to share in the misery. We're going to share in the poverty. We're going to share in the chaos. This is one of the most harebrained schemes ever concocted and put forth. Uh, in fact, you know, even the Democrats, a lot of are embarrassed about this, but they don't know what to do about it because they're afraid not to support it. All these Democratic presidential candidates are all on board with the Green New Deal. Did you see when when the bartender announced this thing, you know, she's out there in Washington and she's surrounded by a bunch of older white men, basically, right? They, these guys are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, gray hair. I mean, don't they know any better? You, How can you get to be 40, 50 year old and be so stupid as to support something that's complete nonsense like this? But they're all standing behind her. Right? She's their new leader. Yeah, we're with her. You know, we're with the bartender, right? I mean, this is moronic. I mean, of course, under normal circumstances, the Democrats would go down like the Titanic if they tried to run uh, a White House campaign on, on, this, uh, on this platform. The only opportunity they're going to have is if I'm right about this recession and we are knee deep in it in 2020, if this economy is a disaster and we're in a bear market, this crap is going to sell. People are going to vote for it. That is the danger of democracy, that you end up with socialism. 
That is exactly what our founding fathers warned about. That is why they created a republic. That is why, to the extent that there were elections in this country, they had the good sense to limit who could vote by having criteria that would prevent like people like this bartender from voting or serving in elective office because they knew how dangerous this nonsense was. And of course, people like that benefit. You benefit if you live in a good, just society with free market capitalism, individual liberty, even if you can't vote, you are better off than living in a socialist society where you get to vote for socialism. But I want to take a step back and talk about this stuff where Cortez says, or the bartender, how are we going to pay for it? Like, how did we pay for the New Deal? How did we pay for the Second World War? Well, the bartender has no idea how we paid for this stuff, right? She thinks it was all paid for by the Federal Reserve. That's not true. I mean, yes, the Federal Reserve did create some inflation during that time period, but most of the cost of the New Deal and World War II was paid for by lower income and middle income taxpayers who were hit with massive tax increases. I'm going to go over right now. I'm going to give you guys some facts that you may not know about. 1929, the U.S. tax code, the lowest bracket, the bottom bracket, was for incomes between zero and $4,000 of taxable income. Now, remember, before you get taxable income, you get your deductions, your standard deduction, the deductions for your kids, right? So you get that first. And then what's left over is taxable income. So your taxable income is going to be less than your total income uh, because you get your, your exemption. So in 1929, the lowest bracket for the poorest people, if you had income of less than $4,000, you paid an income tax of 1.5%. That was it. 1.5% on your first $4,000 of taxable income. Now, in 1929, I, I checked, and the average annual salary was about $1,400 a year. $1,400 a year. So if you had a salary of $1,400, you know, by the time you got your deductions, you probably paid no income taxes at all. But if you had any taxable income, it was at 1.5%. Now, back then, probably, you know, you didn't have, I don't know how many women worked, how many two-income families at that low level, you know, the, the, the lowest earners, maybe you had a few women in the workforce. But even if you had two people working and they were making 1400 so you're making 2800 you know, you're still in the 1.5% bracket. And of course, remember, you know, not that long ago, 1913, that's when the income tax kicked in. So before that, it was zero, right? But one and a half percent is pretty close to zero. I mean, I'm in Puerto Rico, I'm paying 4%, right? So that's a lot less than I'm paying. So 1.5% was nothing. The top tax bracket was 25%. And you had to earn 100,000 a year before you could get into the 25% bracket, which was about 100 times uh, what the average income was. I mean, the average income today, household income is about $60,000. So maybe individuals earn $30,000 or something like that. So a hundred times that is like 3 million. So you'd have to earn, I don't know, three to $6 million before you could hit the 25% bracket uh, back in 1929. So people paid very, very low taxes. Now the depression hits, right? The stock market crashed in 1929. Roosevelt comes in 1932. We get the new deal. What does he do? Income taxes go way up. The bottom bracket is raised from 1.5% to 4% on the first uh, $4,000 of income. So taxes are basically tripled at the very bottom. And now the 25% bracket kicks in at $38,000 a year. Still a big number, but about a third of when it was at 100000 And they jacked up the top marginal rate uh, at, to 63%. If you earned a million dollars or more, which is like what, making $100 million, right? Very few people made that much money. Uh, but then you had a 63% tax bracket. Now, 1940, we're in World War II, right? World War II starts in 1941, but we're, we're ratcheting up. 1940, the bottom tax bracket gets raised to 10% on the first 2,000 now and 13% on the next 2,000. So now you're talking about an average rate of 11.5% on your first 4,000. In 1940, 11 years earlier, it was one and a half percent. So that's about a tenfold increase in taxes on the poorest working Americans to pay for World War II. And the 25 percent bracket now comes down to 
hits in at $18,000 of income. You're now paying 25%, whereas it was $100,000 uh, in 1929. And now they jacked the top rate up to 79% on incomes above $5 million, right? 1942, now we're really into the war. It's really costing money. They jacked the bottom tax rate on the first 2,000, goes up to 19%. The first 2,000 of taxable income. The next 2,000 is 22%. So now the average tax rate on your first $4,000 of income is 21.5% or 20, 21% rather, 21%. It was 1.5% in 1929, 1942 to fight World War II. We are up to 21%. What, what is that? It's not quite a 20-fold increase, but it is a massive increase in government taxes. The 26% bracket, they didn't even have a 25% bracket. They skipped right over it. The 26% bracket kicks in at $4,000. The minute you make more than $4,000, now you're at 26%. That is a higher bracket than the richest people paid in 1929. And they raised the top bracket to 88%. Uh, and that now it kicked in at 200000 200000 you're in the 88% bracket. Remember, in 1940, you didn't get to the 79% bracket until you earned $5 million. Now you're in 88% at $200,000. 1944, right? We're spending more money on the war. They raised the bottom bracket again, 23% for the first 2,000 and 25% for the next 2,000. So now the tax rate on your first 4,000 is 24%. That is Basically, 10 times, it went from 1.5% to 24%. That is almost a 20-fold increase. A 10-fold increase is 15%. So we're, we're, we're 24% is, the, uh, is the, the lowest bracket. And 25%, again, kicks in at 2,000. That was the rate. That was the top rate in 1929, 25% on over $100,000. Now you've got 25% on incomes above 2,000. Oh, and by the way, between 1929 and 1944, average incomes basically doubled because of inflation. So now, you know, you have to deal with the bracket creep because the, the inflation has caused people to earn more money because prices have gone up. Because in addition to all the taxes that were necessary to finance the world war, the Fed still printed a bunch of money. And then they raised the top bracket, went up to 92%. 92% on incomes above 200000 This is 1944. So in answer to uh, the bartender's question, how did we pay for World War II? We jacked up taxes massively on the working poor and the middle class. That's how we paid for it. Is that how she wants to pay for the Green New Deal? There's no talk about that. There's no talk about these big tax increases. In fact, the victory tax in 1943 also included a telephone excise tax that didn't exist. There were all sorts of other taxes that were imposed in addition to the income tax. And we also got in 1943 the withholding tax. See, right now, Americans get taxes taken out of their paycheck. It, didn't, it wasn't always that way. From 1913 to 1943, nobody had taxes withheld from their pay. Right? So what you did is everybody just sent in a check to the IRS uh, by April uh, 15th of the following year right, for what you earned. But the government needed the money right away. They couldn't wait for April uh, uh, 15th of the following year. They were fighting a war. They needed the money right away. Plus, they were also worried that the taxes were going up so much that a lot of Americans you know, would, would spend the money while they earned it, and they wouldn't even have the money left over to pay the taxes. So they came up with the idea of taking the taxes directly out of the pay of people when they earned it. And, and, and that's what came in. And the only reason they were able to get this in was because it was during a war. It was wartime. Nobody was going to object to paying for a war that they weren't even fighting. People were dying, right? People were risking their lives. You weren't going to complain that some of your pay was, some taxes were taken out of your pay. So the government used the emergency of the war and the patriotism that, you know, that surrounded that to be able to, you know, usurp this taxing power and get everybody's taxes withheld from their pay. But that was introduced. Now, the Second World War comes to an end. We got some tax relief in 1946. They reduced the bottom rate 
from 23% on, on the first 1,000, right, and, and 25% on the next 2,000, they reduce that to 20% for the first 2,000. That's it. That's as low as they went. So even after the war ended, we demobilized all of our troops. They all came home. Did they lower taxes back to where they were before the war started? No. Did they lower taxes back to where they were before the New Deal started? No. 20% is as low as it went for the first 2,000. And they did notch the top bracket down from 92% to 91% on incomes above 200,000. So the reason that after the war was over, the reason that we didn't return taxes back to the very low level that they were at in 1929 was because we now had all these New Deal programs that we had to pay for. And we also had a bunch of debt that we accumulated during the war that we had to pay down. So because we had all this debt and because we had all this government that was created by the New Deal that did not exist Prior to 1929, those high temporary wartime taxes were made permanent. So we paid for this stuff by taxing the middle class and taxing the poor. And those rates stayed where they were. We didn't get a reduction in taxes again until Jack Kennedy was president in 1964. And he finally lowered the bottom rate on the first $1,000 of income down to 16%. That was as low as it got, 16%. It was 1.5 in 1929, and they lowered the top tax rate to 77%. That was the big Jack Kennedy tax cut. We went from 91 to 77. We didn't make any material reductions again until the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. So we got a permanent increase in the size of government. And of course, the big problem that we had during the 1970s was that all of the inflation that was created to help finance the great society programs of the 1960s, because there we really had the uh, the guns and butter monetary policy, where not only did we run deficits to pay for the Great Society, but we ran deficits to pay for the Vietnam War. We ran deficits to pay for the mission to the moon that the bartender is talking about. In fact, she actually talks about all the wars, so that would include the Vietnam War. But the Vietnam War and the Great Society programs were financed to a large degree by deficits, deficit spending and money printing. And that resulted in significant inflation in the 1970s. And we had a lot of income tax brackets uh, back in the day. And as a result of all the inflation, we you know, developed something that we called bracket creep where so many people were being forced into higher tax brackets simply because their wages were rising to keep pace with rising prices. And so this amounted to a tax increase without the government actually legislating for higher taxes, because, of course, people don't want to vote to increase taxes. But when inflation was pushing people into higher tax brackets, then taxes were being increased without the political embarrassing need to go on record uh, of voting for them. And that was one of the the, the, the reasons that Reagan was able to come in and lower taxes in the 1980s because so many people had had these stealth tax increases that were the result of inflation. So not only was inflation a tax in that it robbed you of your purchasing power, which is what it is, because if the government isn't paying for its spending with taxation, if instead it's issuing bonds that the Fed is buying and monetizing the bonds and creating inflation, well, then you're paying for government through inflation. And so the government isn't taking your money through taxation. It's taking the purchasing power of your money. There's no free lunch. If the government is spending money, that's money that somebody else can't spend because the government doesn't create. It only redistributes. So it can't spend what it doesn't take. It can't put into the economy what it doesn't first take out of the economy. And again, the problem with this, and I've described it before, is it's like giving yourself a blood transfusion from your right arm to your left arm and you spill half the blood on the floor. The government doesn't make us richer by taking money out of one pocket and putting it in the other because the cost of government means there's a net loss. That's why I say you're spilling blood on the floor. So when you're transfusing blood from one arm to another and if you spill half the blood, you are losing blood. And if you do it long enough, you're going to bleed to death because you're not going to have enough blood. And that's what the government has been doing. It has been bleeding the economy dry. And another thing that was the result of the increasing tax burden on the average American family was the 
the movement of women into the workforce. I mean, Donald Trump in his State of the Union address was celebrating the fact that more women than ever are now required to work in the United States. But once upon a time, women didn't have to work. If they didn't want to work, their husbands were able to support them and they could stay at home and help take care of the house and raise the family and make a home and and do all sorts of things and get involved in the communities and get involved in, in charities or their churches, whatever they did. But because of the increasing tax burden, right, as more and more of the husband's paycheck was taken by government, there was less of that paycheck left over to support the family to the point where the wife had no choice. She had to give up being a stay-at-home mom, and she had to go into the workforce so she can earn back the money that her husband was paying in taxes. And also, as the dollar's value went down, particularly in the 1970s, as the dollar collapsed in value and prices went up and up and up, you know, people's wages did not keep pace. And so not only were Americans diverting more of their income, having more of their income confiscated through taxes, whether it was due to bracket creep or whatever other reason, they had less after-tax income, but then the after-tax income that they had left didn't go as far because prices went up. So now women had to work. And so all of this, this big decline in our standard of living was the result of the ramp up in government. More government meant less freedom, and it meant people had to work harder for less in order to enable the government to have more resources to redistribute. So we saw a big decline in our standard of living to make all this possible. The problem is we can't afford to do it again. We're already broke from the last failed socialist experiments. The last thing we need now is to go all in on something that doesn't work. This bartender does not understand how tiny and insignificant government was prior to the New Deal and World War II. And what made all this possible, what enabled us to borrow all this money and pay for all this government was because we were rich, because we had lots of savings, and because we had next to no government to start with. See, if people aren't really paying any taxes at all, right, and they're getting 100% of their income, okay, you can impose taxes on them. People can afford it. I think it was a mistake. We shouldn't have done it, but we had the wealth. We had the resources. We had the income to do it. We had the balance sheet to do it. We were able to borrow all this money because we were rich. We weren't in debt. But what uh, the bartender wants to do is embark on massive government spending on a scale similar to World War II, even bigger than World War II, when we are broke. How are we going to pay for this when we don't have the money? How are we going to increase taxes on the poor and the middle class? We're not. And she even admits somewhere in her document that there is no way to tax the rich enough to pay for this. Because the reality of it was, is even though you had top tax rates of 92% in 1929, if you look at the percentage of the income tax paid by the rich back then and the percentage of GDP that they paid, it's about the same as it is now. You can't get much more money from that source, even if you jack up the rates. And of course, the reason that those high rates even worked back then, because no idiot's going to work for eight cents on the dollar. So the reason that those high rates worked, those very high rates, is because nobody really paid them. Very little income was actually subject to tax at those rates. People were able to use the tax code, and rightfully so, to eliminate their income. I mean, everything was deductible back then. There was only one kind of income. Everybody formed businesses. Every personal expense was run through your business. And again, they they couldn't audit you much back then. They didn't have any computers. They didn't have any 1099s. And think about all the transactions that took place in cash. Think about all the unreported income, right? Nobody was paying for things with credit cards. They didn't exist, right? So it was easy to evade the 92% tax. That's why it worked, because it was easy to avoid it. If there was no way around it, everything would have imploded. But the bottom line is, this bartender has no idea how we paid for the big increase in the size of government to fund the New Deal, and then ultimately the Great Society and War on Poverty. All this stuff was paid for uh, with tax hikes, paid for with borrowing. But now we're broke. We're $22 trillion in debt. We're loaded up with unfunded liabilities. 
people don't have any money to pay taxes. Something like 40, 50% of people aren't even paying any income taxes right now because they're broke. I mean, they're paying social security taxes, but to raise taxes on the middle class and working poor who are currently paying the taxes, it's impossible. And she's not even advocating it. So basically what it all boils down to is that she believes that we're going to pay for all of this not based on tax hikes on the billionaires, because that's only going to be a drop in the bucket, if anything. According to her, it's all going to come from the Fed. And she says the Fed is going to provide the financing. We're going to create more uh, government banks that the Fed is going to fund. So in other words, we're going to pay for it all with a printing press. We're going to create inflation. We're going to create money out of thin air. And then the government is going to use that money it creates out of thin air to create massive prosperity for everybody. Everybody is going to get a great job. Everybody's going to have free health care, free education, all these benefits. And we're simultaneously going to rebuild the country, right? Replace all the energy inefficient structures with more energy ones. We're going to come up with all this new technology. It's all going to be driven by a centralized planned economy. Her and her buddies in Washington are going to orchestrate this economic miracle. And it's all going to be paid for by printing money. I mean, how ignorant can somebody get? Like, this has never been tried before. Like, we we haven't had hyperinflation. We haven't had despots rise to power on this false promise of this prosperity from government and from a printing press and all of this, you know, vilification of the rich and this class warfare and envy. And these people didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. Let's take it from them. Let's take from the rich. Let's distribute to everybody else because we're more needy. We're more deserving. And in fact, now it's all we're victims. It's not just that we deserve it. We've been victimized. We're entitled to this reparations. We're entitled to a redistribution of wealth because of our gender, because women have been persecuted, because the elderly have been persecuted, the young have been persecuted, the minorities, uh, homosexuals, transgender, right? You know, people with disabilities. Every single group, I guess with the exception of uh, you know white men who are you know not old and not young, right? There's just a, a, a small sliver of non-victims who are actually predators and everybody else has been victimized by these predators. And so that's now the new rationalization uh, to for socialism and, and government orchestrated theft, all on the false promise of this shared prosperity for all that has failed every single time. Every time it's been tried, it has never, ever worked. Right. And that is the definition of insanity. Right. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that basically proves that anybody who believes in socialism, anybody who votes for socialism by any other name is insane.